I would rather have a C player today that's coachable than an A player that's not coachable. Because you can turn that C player into an A player. We're almost guaranteed that A player over time is going to be a C player. And there's no hope for them. So I think like understanding the power of coachability and just being more susceptible to coaching myself. Where like, again, I was always a gloves up, like ready to fight kind of person. Just understanding that like, yeah, it sucks to give tough feedback. Uh, and to truly treat it like a gift is important. You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Today's guest, we have Jamie Ahern. Jamie is the CEO of Karmacare. Prior, which I'm, I'm excited to go through, is we've had multiple exits along the way, some time in hedge fund. I, this is going to be a fun one to go through. Jamie, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. No, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about Karmacare and, and how'd you get involved and what are you doing for Karmacare? Yeah, so I'm currently the CEO of Karmacare. Karmacare really, uh, I'm a big believer and hopefully this will, this will come out throughout the show. Big believer in falling in love with the problem versus the solution. So the problem that we're really trying to solve is that car repairs represent the number three driver of consumer debt in the United States. Something like six in 10 millennials have foregone necessary car repairs. You know, and I've been spoiled. I've lived my entire life in Chicago and, and Manhattan, where like you can kind of get, get by without a car. For most people in the United States, your car represents not just a mode of transportation, it's truly your livelihood. So you can't keep a job, you can't feed your family without a car. Mix that with inflation, car repairs are through the roof, up 25% year over year. And with interest rates, you now can't afford to buy a new car. And so keeping your car on the road is more important than ever. And really, we're trying to solve that through a, a couple different facets. So our first product is really attacking the extended car warranty space. So if you think about the financial products that are really designed to help out with car affordability, you have car insurance on the one end that's relatively well-regulated, relatively well-saturated, and then extended car warranties, which have been turned into a meme. So it is just a lot of, of opportunity ripe for the picking, really to help uh, help out with everything that's not a collision with uh, with car expenses. So like you press on, car doesn't go on, what do you do? The second thing that we're really excited about is we're actually launching this tomorrow morning. What we're referring to is the virtual garage. The virtual garage is something like three quarters of people from a recent AAA study, three quarters of consumers in the United States have what they refer to as repairophobia, that they have extreme anxiety taking their car into the shop. And from our perspective, after a ton of research, we believe the core reason of that is dramatic information asymmetry, where you have a mechanic that has gone to school for years and years and has practiced being a mechanic for years and years to be an expert in fixing cars. And you work as an accountant or as a consultant or behind a desk and a computer all day. You don't know the first thing about cars, but you need your car in order to survive. They tell you X, Y, and Z is wrong. It's going to be five grand. You say, thanks, here's my money. So the virtual garage, really what we're doing is pairing consumers with licensed mechanics to virtually diagnose problems and give a loose cost estimate, just so you know kind of what's going on by the time you walk into a repair shop. That's that you mentioned. And, you know, of course, we had a conversation before this and I was pretty blown away. I had no idea that that would have been number three. It makes sense. When you think about it in hindsight, they're costly repairs. And what are you going to do? Your only other option is to buy another car or 
the other modes of transportation, which aren't going to be inexpensive or just not doable, depending on the the city that that you're in, as you mentioned. So that's super interesting. Now, how did this all begin? I want to make sure that I I'd heard this correctly. Did you start at the Citadel when you were 17? Is that <laughs> yes. correct? Yeah, yes, it did. So do you want the Citadel story or the Karma Care story? Well, come back to the karma care story, but yeah. this starting at the Citadel and for people that don't know, Citadel is one of the most successful, one of the, you know, has had one of the most prestigious hedge funds period. And you started when you were 17. How did that even happen? This is a good story. So basically what had happened, I grew up in a very middle-class area. My parents were entrepreneurs. So when times were good, they were great, but there were obviously the, the other ends of that were like, Money was tight. And so we lived in a very kind of like middle of the road type of town, pretty unremarkable. My dad would always joke the only remarkable thing about Sleepy Hollow where I grew up is how unremarkable it is. Just kind of like run of the mill. Went to high school there and I had graduated valedictorian. And so I had to give a speech. It was a pretty large high school. I think we graduated something like 600 kids or, and so you have like, their family and typically like the police and fire department and everything else would come. And so we were on a, we were out at a huge like park in our town and I spoke and about two weeks later, I'm of Irish heritage. And so um, my dad's idea, my parents' idea of volunteering is serving beer at an Irish festival. Chicago. And so that was his, that was his volunteering. So my dad's probably five or six beers in and um, the fire chief. So the chief of the fire department for our local town is also of Irish descent and is at this volunteer or this um, you know fundraiser for you know at our local church and he gets to the front of the line like him and my dad are talking and um, he's like hey I heard your son speak at the graduation whatever like two weeks ago what does he want to do when he graduates Northwestern and my dad's like oh he wants to work for a hedge fund and again I was 17 at the time I had started school early so it kind of like skipped a couple grades and like was really like barely 17 when this conversation was happening. But, and I had no idea what a hedge fund was. I didn't know Citadel. I didn't know what they did. I didn't, I, I kind of loosely understood what the stock market was, but outside of that, like no clue. And it turned out the fire chief's sister was like the fifth employee at Citadel. And so um, I'm like, I move in, you know, a week or two later into, into Northwestern and I get a call from this extremely senior woman at Citadel, the fire chief's sister. I was like, hey, like had heard, um, you know, whatever, you know, my my brother and he was speaking very highly of you. And like, do you want to come in for an interview? Um, and so like went down there. I think the expectation was for like that to kick off like a junior year internship like they typically do it. But since, you know, Northwestern's just on the north side of Chicago, so it's only about a 20, 25 minute commute all the way downtown. And so after talking to them a little bit, they're like, hey, like, is there any way you could just do stuff during the week? And so I packed my classes like. Tuesday, Thursday, and then come downtown, work there like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, weekends, whatever I could. And again, like my parents were everything they could to pay for tuition, but a lot of that fell on me. And so the fact that Citadel was willing to help out, it's like, yeah, no, zero brainer here. Let's let's figure this out. What was that like doing that, being there at 17? <laughs> so the other, I think, interesting dynamic or dimension of this is this is in 2007, so this is right before the financial crisis. And so I was technically there through the whole crisis. You know, at 17, I had no idea what a workplace was like. And so for me, that started to feel a lot more normal 
and I'm sure there's a lot to unpack at a, you know, for a different question here. It's like, I, I didn't know any better. Like that's what work was to me was Citadel and like Citadel. Yeah. It's like in hindsight, a very intense place. It's a very candid place, which I tend to do well in where like people don't beat around the bush. They kind of, if you got something to say, you say it. And so in a lot of ways, like Citadel formed where it wasn't as much of like me being overwhelmed coming in. I was so young. I was clay. Right. And like, they just kind of molded me into the Citadel archetype and it worked, but it does tend to be, you got comfortable with a few things that I think in retrospect are maybe not normal where, um, you know, I had a couple mentors throughout the process get fired and there's no notice. They don't know anything. Like I would just show up and the desk next to me would be empty. And it's like, Oh, like, where's, you know, John today. It's like, Oh, he doesn't work anymore. It's like, Oh, like, got it. Like, that's just how this works. And that was before the crisis. And then when the crisis happened, like there were moments where I was getting pretty frantic phone calls, like while I was in a final kind of thing of like, Jamie, you need to get down here now. Like things are falling apart. Like this has, has to happen like yesterday. And so, yeah, like I would, whatever, like hustle through a final to like jog downtown and get there and try to whatever, like piece things together. Obviously at 17, I wasn't managing anything ultra mission critical, but I did a lot of like the cash balance reporting and stuff like that to make sure that like, you know, there was enough money to turn the lights on the next day. And so that was a wild time. I'm glad I lived through it once. If I never had to do that again, Citadel, I would gladly do again. Citadel through the crisis, I would prefer to never, never do again. That was, that was intense. What do you think is some of the biggest challenges that you experienced and learnings that you, that you had from there during that time? You know, a couple things, and I've heard, I think it was Steve Jobs, or it gets talked about a lot in tech that like being lazy is a good thing. Because lazy people will find creative ways to not do work and oftentimes still get the work done. And so that really came through where like, again, as a 17 year old intern, I got the shit work. I was bottom of the totem pole. I got whatever, what everybody else didn't want to do. And so I think that helped me sort of like approach problems a little bit more creatively. Cause like some of these things would be incredibly tedious where, um, they have to get done and they have to get done with hundred percent accuracy, but they're not fun to go through. It'd be like ticking and tying like, you know, trade reports or something to make sure that like what the broker saw is like what we saw and make sure like that all lined up. And there could be tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of rows to like go through all this. And so like, you know, I started getting creative with like VBA and like writing whatever, like small, stupid code in Excel to like do things quicker. And like, it's like, oh, like I'm actually getting rewarded for being lazy because I didn't want to do this, not kind of being punished for not doing my job. And I think Citadel was definitely a place that like they gave you plenty of rope, no matter who you were, where like the expectations were very clear and the upside was very clear where they were very generous when, when like bonus season came around, et cetera. But they were also very, uh, the downside was very clear, right? Like, and it wasn't about how hard you worked. It was purely outcome. And so it's not about FaceTime or anything else. It was purely outcome driven. And so if you performed, you got rewarded. And if you didn't perform, no matter how hard you tried, you got fired. But at least you knew where you stood, right? There was never any any guessing. And so I think I've had to learn how to like soften some of those corners a little bit. But certainly when I left Citadel, I was pretty rigid in how I thought because it was like, well, if you're doing well, you get paid. And if you're not doing well, you get fired. That's just the way the world works. And I realized after that, that's not the way that most of the world. That's the way like a very small sliver of the world works. Yeah, you brought up a couple interesting points. I think that... Uh... When you mentioned in particular kind of that forced creativity, I think one of the things that I've found that I've, and I've heard this from other people is 
when you have constraints, you're more creative, if that makes any sense. Like where we have this box around when you've got a blue ocean and you can go anywhere, it's actually harder, in my opinion, to be creative in that. But when you have these constraints, which is why, you know, and I think it makes a lot of sense when they say how some of the best companies were started in a market downturn, you're going to get to the root issue and you're going to be really creative at solving that root problem because you don't have the resources to tackle all the problems. And it sounds like that's that's pretty similar to the experience that you had with that. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, Citadel obviously had a ton of resources, but being low man on the totem pole, like I couldn't hand off my work to anybody else. <laughs> I, I had to do this. And yeah, there was no nobody else I could tap into or anything like I was the the like last stop. And so, yeah, like I've never actually thought about it from that perspective. But yeah, you're probably right that it was driven by. I had more work than I had time or patience to do. So like, how am I going to come up with a way to get it done? And I'm interested, how much did that help you later in your career? Like that piece in particular, that kind of forced creativity to solve a problem. You know, it's funny. I was texting with a mentor actually over the weekend. And um, you had mentioned, I, I sort of made the announcement, made it like LinkedIn official, the equivalent of like Facebook official, I guess, that like I am at KarmaCare. One of my mentors reached out just to congratulate me and whatever else. And he said that I was one of the more resourceful people that he's ever worked with. And I took that as an extreme compliment. You know, I've never thought about it through this lens, but now that I'm thinking about it, a lot of it probably did come from Citadel, where it was it was such an interesting culture because it had nothing to do with FaceTime. If you wanted to work two hours a week and your portfolio was up, you still got paid. And that was fine. And it really was, at least back then, I don't know if that's changed. I mean, this is 15 plus years ago. But back then, like the, it, it was very much like it only mattered what you were able to produce and not how much, how hard you worked or how much you worked. And so, yeah, like I do think that that probably, I probably have carried that forward with me. Where even now, like I'm probably not your stereotypical CEO or even at can like COO for that matter, where like I like to write code, I like to get into databases, I like to like, I can barely speak English, but it's not going to prevent me from like trying to write copy and like send out emails. And like, I definitely tinker, but I feel like I got that bug from Citadel where again, that behavior was rewarded as long as it had positive outcomes. Yep. Makes sense. You're getting paid for your performance no matter what. So you left Citadel and then you still stayed in kind of the finance space. What did you do after Citadel? Yeah. So, um, Large chunk of my time at Citadel was at was while I was still in college. And then I graduated, they had moved me up to New York. And um, they had really spun up, and this might be getting like too finance heavy, but there's sort of like the buy side in finance and the sell side in finance. So like the buy side initiates a transaction. So like they either they either want to like buy or sell something. And the sell side basically makes it happen. So like the buy side would be a hedge fund in most cases like a Citadel or Bridgewater, or like even a lot of the Fidelities, Vanguards, whatever, are all usually buy side shops. And the sell side is more like your investment banks, your Goldman Sachs, your Morgan Stanley's, your UBS's that like make what the buy side wants to do, just make it happen. Citadel, because a lot of this was just post-crisis, Citadel thought that there was a big opportunity in the sell side. So kind of like Citadel to like start to eat some of Goldman Sachs's lunch kind of thing. And so they spun up an investment bank that they had positioned me into. And after about a year, it became very apparent that Citadel had too much of a brand within the hedge fund world to really be successful as a sell side. Because sell side, like the most important thing 
is that the buy side trusts you. Buy side <laughs> don't trust each other. And so like, if you've got a big hedge fund working with Citadel as a sell side, it's like, well, how do I know you're not just going to like feed this back to Citadel, the hedge fund and like crush me. And that was a hard thing. I think that they couldn't really overcome. So they ended up folding that division and I got fired. And so was looking around, was in New York, was reasonably happy there. And, um, did find my way to another hedge fund actually from the head of the trading desk was another Northwestern alum. And so um, we've kind of networked our way into that. And like, he's like a big brother to me is still, we're extremely close, but yeah, brought me on to a much smaller hedge fund. So that was call it about 20 people in the front office. So like making investment decisions. And we managed, I think at our peak around like 1.8 billion in assets, but really just again, super lean, like 20 person team. And that was mostly um, Asia focused. So had a Japanese tilt, but really kind of like pan Asia. Let me ask you a question. What was that transition like? You were at Citadel, one of the largest hedge funds in the world, rose up the ranks quickly, were there at college. And then it's interesting because it's exactly what you just described, how this was this culture of you may have a great person that you work with and then they're gone. What was that like for you? You experienced that and then you go to a, a smaller fund. What was that transition like? Honestly, more seamless than you might expect. The biggest difference, I think, between those two shops was for me twofold. One, realizing the world wasn't just the United States. That was like probably the biggest eye opener where um, oftentimes I was actually working overnight in New York. So I'd work kind of like 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. every once in a while. And uh, you're dealing exclusively with people in Hong Kong and Singapore and Tokyo and really kind of all over where that was pretty cool, where I feel like that was like definitely one of the bigger and I had a they, they were very generous with like trips over there to like get to know your counterparts and so spent a, not a ton of time, but a decent amount of time in, in Asia that that I think really opened up my, my worldview where it's not just the US. And then two, the culture was still performance based. But I likened it a lot more to like patriarchy, like a family type of system where like, because we're only 20 people, like I knew the chief investment officer, like the head, the head guy, like reasonably well, I sat right out in front of his office and like, he'd say hi every time he walked in and out. And like, we knew each other very well. We're like, I didn't know Ken Griffin at Citadel to the same degree because Citadel's huge. And so it felt much more like a family. And like, I felt like he always had my best interest in mind. And like, they were always very fair and compensation and like also gave me a, enough leash to hurt myself, which thank, thank, thank God it didn't <laughs> go that way. But there were moments where again, at this point, 23 years old, I had discretion on a couple hundred million dollars uh, where they would say like, you can do whatever you want up to whatever, a hundred million dollars or $150 million without calling me. If you want to go bigger than that, give me a phone call. But like, otherwise you do you kid, which was like pretty cool. But again, I think it, it felt like, again, my boss felt like my big brother and like the head guy felt like a, you know, father figure or grandfather figure type thing. So you were in finance for almost seven years and then you went to tech. So before we get into the story of how you got into tech, why make that leap? Because, I mean, just kind of talking like that, stating the obvious, you're already in hedge fund. You know, hedge fund was typically, you know, I, I, as you had mentioned earlier, but for some of our listeners, you know, a lot of people start on the investment banking side as kind of a springboard into private equity or or a hedge fund. You are already in the hedge funds, which means you had to fast track to make 
more money than you can spend. Why change? Why make that total change altogether? Yeah. So I think to answer that question, I should probably answer the, the question of like why I got into finance to begin with outside of purely happenstance. Like, yes, like the, the opportunity very much fell in my lap and I, I jumped at it. But a lot of it was, okay, I'm graduating with a fair amount of student debt. How do I get out of this as fast as possible? And to your point, like hedge funds pay well, right? And so that was yeah. the easiest way for me to pay off my student loans and be totally debt-free by 21, 22. And so the first couple stops in my career journey were, honestly, I didn't have to give a whole lot of thought to because I was purely immersive. It's like, whoever's going to pay me the most, it's where I'm going because like I don't want to be in debt. And then really, uh, ACQ also kind of had this very... So Citadel, again, I got fired. ACQ had this very obvious moment in time where I should be looking for a job where, not to go into too much detail, but Japan had a big event in 2013 that the markets went all over the place. And basically, we were on the wrong side of that. And so we went from you know close to a $2 billion hedge fund down to you know $400 million, which is still a lot of money, but we had infrastructure built around a $2 billion hedge fund. It's just hard to hard to maintain. So my CIO basically folded the shop. So it wasn't like I, I personally got fired, but it's like the company ceased to exist. And so I had to, had to kind of find something new. And that was like, the timing of that was interesting because I was now officially out of debt. To your point, I was making more money than I candidly like knew, knew what to do with. I was starting to like buy houses in Chicago as like investment properties and things, things like that, that like didn't, it was cool. And I was like, again, in retrospect, very glad I did it. But like, it also, you know, I started to think a lot more about personal worth versus net worth. And it really came down to, and I got to be careful, my wife's in the other room and she runs a bond portfolio. So she's <laughs> very much in, in that world. But it kind of came down to like my sole existence was to make extraordinarily wealthy people a little more rich. And yes, I got compensated very handsomely to do that. But at the end of the day, like, am I really making an impact? Am I really like positively changing the trajectory of other people's lives? And I, I couldn't get over that hump. And so I, I decided I did want to build and I did want to get into tech. And my biggest concern was like, well, I'm a finance guy. I've been trading Asian derivatives and like subprime mortgages my whole career for you know six, seven years at this point. What do I have that any tech firm would be even interested in, in talking to me about? Which is really probably feeding into your next question a little bit, like how to, how to get there. Another, in case you can't tell, like Northwestern was extremely defining in my career. So I was at a Northwestern, like New York, Northwestern alumni event and um, happened to strike up a conversation with a guy, ironically, who was the mentor that was texting me over the weekend. He was the founding data scientist at Netflix. And so the whole like recommendation engine, like you might also was kind of his his brainchild. So this guy has taken hours of my life. <laughs> very much, very, very much. Uh, and he's really good at what he does. And, you know, him and I started talking and he had just gotten poached at this company LearnVest in New York, which is kind of like financial planning for the everyday American, not just for like your hyper, hyper wealthy folks. And, um, you know, we, again, we met at this event, but we, we kind of stayed in touch and, um, he started recruiting me as a data scientist. And he was really the one that helped translate for me. Like I'd always called myself a quant in the hedge fund world because I, I like numbers and was like, whatever, could code enough to cause problems. He helped me understand like the rest of the world has a word for that. We just call it data science instead of quant. But it's really, again, similar to like me trading subprime mortgages is actually kind of similar to me trading Asian derivatives. 
it's actually quite similar to me being a data scientist in a tech firm. It's all the same underlying skill set, just applied to a different problem. So you made this change. That makes complete sense. You know, you're doing the same stuff from the data science world. How was that transition? What was that like going over to the tech space from finance? That was big. So again, I was able to keep most of my sharp corners, even at the other hedge fund, because like we all kind of grew up in the same forge, if you will. So we all kind of looked and acted similar. And then I got into tech and that's totally different. Where I remember, and I'm not proud of this, I remember it was like maybe my second week at LearnVest, I actually made one of our designers cry because I was coming off like way too aggressive and I didn't mean to. Like that was just where I grew up. And like, that was how we spoke to each other. And like, again, you didn't sugarcoat things, you just hit it. And I remember, I think we were talking about like something that at the time I lacked respect for that now I've realized is, is probably some of the most important things that you can do in the business. To me, it was always a formula with a problem to solve, right? Of like, you put X dollars in, you get Y dollars out. As long as Y is bigger than X, you're good to go. And um, a lot of the branding or messaging or like user experience stuff, like all fell on deaf ears with me because it's not, it's not where I grew up. I didn't, I didn't have a background in it. And so that, that was hard because I had to one, learn to learn to deal with people that weren't as psychopathic as like me and my, my hedge fund brethren. But then two, I had to learn respect for stuff that didn't have a mathematical answer to it that is a little bit more like softer and qualitative in nature and find respect for it. That hurt a little bit. <laughs> like, again, everything I'd ever known to that point, like I still could do my day job, but in order to be successful kind of at a, at a higher level, I had to learn to deal with different types of people and learn, learn to have respect for, for different types of things that previously, like I just never encountered. How did you go about doing that? You know, I think I'm a very skeptical guy by nature. So I actually kind of remember this. I got in a whatever, like tussle with somebody about like a, a UX product experience type thing. And uh, their response was like, okay, let's just test it and let's see what happens. Sure enough, like that dramatically, their recommendation dramatically outperformed. And it was like, okay, well, like even if I can't see it just yet, there is a qualitative reason why we're doing these things that may come as a second, third, fourth order effect. And I'm used to seeing things in a first order effect. Like you do a thing, you see the change. That gave me a lot of confidence that like, okay, like I need to shut up and I need to listen a little bit more to people that know what they're talking about and I can keep score, right? And I can watch and I can make decisions around that. At that point, I kind of shifted out of data science and more into growth marketing, which again, are, are very similar for a lot of reasons. But that's really where like, yeah, sometimes like the color yellow does have a big impact, right? Depending on on how it's implemented and where it, where it goes or changing small words in copy has a really big impact. And just like watching that, measuring that and finding respect for other people's universe. But it really took, and I, again, I wish I could say like, that is just native to me that like, I respected everyone's opinion and respected everyone's job and everything else. But I had a hard time seeing that until I saw how it impacted my world and sort of what I, what I looked at. That's probably one of the biggest things to start of in general. You could model out a lot, but it's more about what are these processes that we have to be able to test and, and see what's going to work. And some of that is just blind trust. Now, you guys grew LearnVest really fast and ended up having a pretty significant exit. What was that like for you? What kind of impact did that have on your career? Yeah. Again, you sort of alluded to this, but to state, state it maybe a little bit more explicitly, like I took a pretty major pay cut <laughs> going, going from finance to, to tech. And what was cool is like, all in a hurry, it kind of caught me up of uh, the last three years of sort of like foregone wages. Uh, had I stayed in the finance world, like caught me up real quick and kind of in like one check. 
So there was really like a couple elements to that. One was actually selling the company itself. And at that point, like, I'm not going to pretend like I was in every room, but I was certainly in like the squat team that was trying to like put together a lot of like the diligence stuff and like what did have a counterpart. Uh, Northwestern Mutual ended up buying us. So did have a counterpart that I was kind of like trading emails with and like trying to, you know, whatever, like round up a lot of the data for. And that's where like, I got to be careful how I word this because I don't want it to come off the wrong way. Data can tell stories. It's not data doesn't lie, right? But like there are many different interpretations of basically the same data set. And so especially in in an environment like that, a lot of it is around like, okay, this is the data set. How do we how do we have it tell the story that we want it to? Where again, in finance, like I didn't view it as much like that. In finance, like there was a right and wrong answer, and it was my job to find the right answer. In tech, and you sort of alluded to this a little bit with like the branding side, but it also is probably doubly true for like when you're trying to sell a company, the data can tell multiple different stories. And so like, how do we make sure we're telling a story that's consistent with like the world that we think our potential acquirer, you know, views. And so that was fascinating just to go through like those, those couple iterations of like, well, how do we make this say what we want it to? And then the, the second piece was, it's so hard and I don't think anyone does it well. Understanding equity as a junior or like mid-level employee really, really, really hard. And there's some platforms out there that like do start to get there, like Carta and and you know some other platforms. But like at the end of the day, like unless if you're friends with the CFO, like you really don't know what your equity is worth or what it could potentially be worth. And understanding dilution and like liquidity preferences and like all sorts of other stuff. Like what's crazy is like I came from I traded options before, right? And I traded subprime mortgages. Like I've traded really complex financial instruments and like I didn't understand my equity that I was given. So that was kind of new to me. And I think through my kin process, I learned a lot more. But even then, like went from zero to a little bit, like still was very eye-opening where the exit money was good, but certainly not what I was expecting to some degree. And then the third piece was actually the integration work of like working with a very different company that had 150 years of history and uh, tenured employees and like, just dealt at a scale that was hard for us to think about. And the culture clash there, both cultures were great for what they are, but they're different because they're different stages of company, right? So I think like how to navigate that and how big companies think, et cetera, I think was helpful. But I did realize that it's, I'm probably more cut out for the smaller companies than than the bigger companies. So it, what you brought, the equity piece is so important. And anytime I was looking at a position, Whatever it was, I sent to my attorney and I paid a lot of money to have all of that reviewed. And I also probably took the risk of the company saying, like, you know, why? So I was like thinking, why are you sending this to an attorney? And what I said was like, because I've been burned by it before. Like, I, I don't know what these little pieces mean. I don't know what these little triggers mean. And I tell everybody all the time, it's like, send it to an attorney, have an attorney review it, look at it, have them try to explain it to you. I agree with you. If you've got a friend that that really understands it, and then you can ask more intelligent questions about the investors that you're taking on and why you're trying to do this. How are you in position? How are you benchmarking? And those are questions a lot of people are, are afraid to ask. But I would tell you the further you get around your career, you have to. And sometimes you almost have to be burned by it. You almost have to be burned by it to be able to tell other people, here's what you should do. And man, do I wish I would have done this differently. And to be super fair, none of that was like LearnVest's fault, nor like, you know, I've, I've also been burned a couple of times. It's never the company's fault. 
they're not doing anything on purpose, right? They're not hiding anything from you. It's more like my expectations were misaligned. And so I think like, could I have negotiated differently on, on the way in? Had I had perfect information? Like, yeah. Me, and by the way, I did have perfect information. I just didn't read the 50 pages of documents to like get to the, the perfect information. But it is like point very well taken that I, I think there are so many different ways to structure these things. And there's so many things that like from a tax perspective or estate planning or whatever else that you need to do up front that saves you a ton of time and headaches later. Fully, fully agree. Yeah. And I think you bring up a good point. I don't, and I would, I would agree with that as well, that none of the companies, I, I don't believe that they had set it up in a way where, and actually it's probably, I think it was more favorable. It's just, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. And they could have even told me that. <laughs> I just didn't know. And you're so excited to take the job. It doesn't even matter. You're just going in, you're like, oh, this is great. And then afterwards you're like, well, I got to send it to my attorney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So makes total sense. Then you went to Livewatch after this. Is that correct? Yep. And why'd you ultimately join Livewatch from LearnVest? Yeah. So um, when Northwestern Mutual bought LearnVest, obviously, like that was a non-trivial like check that I got where I had some extra money to, to play with. And um, I started doing, again, while I was working at Citadel, I, I bought a couple of houses. And so still like was into the rental property stuff. But I started to get like more and more into tech and wanted to angel invest and wanted to kind of be a part of that community a little bit a little bit better. So I did end up investing in a company based here in Chicago. And one of the guys I was kind of like investing alongside of, it was sort of like a, a friends and family type round, but there was only five of us that kind of filled up the round. And one of the guys I was getting really close with throughout this process is still a very good friend to this day, a guy named uh, Dan Aronson who at the time was kind of the number two at Livewatch. And he had made the decision to go be a number one somewhere. And so he was looking to kind of backfill his role. One of the things that Brad, the, the CEO at Livewatch, had kind of charged Dan with was like, hey, can you help me find a replacement? And so Dan and I had gotten pretty comfortable with each other throughout this diligence process where he kind of floated the idea. He knew I was from Chicago, still had a lot of you know family back here and put me in touch with Brad. And um, that was kind of a match made in heaven. You know, Brad's a fascinating guy. So Brad is a professor at Kellogg, in addition to operating a series of businesses. And he was really the first guy that I'd ever met that studied leadership as a discipline. And it really showed in how he ran a team and how he ran a meeting and how he ran a company. And so that was very eye-opening for me, where again, like I'd seen some phenomenal success, both at like Citadel in the hedge fund world, as well as, as LearnVest. But never met somebody who's so calculated with leadership as he was. Not only is he a really good natural born leader, he's just also studied it and put in the hours to become a great leader. Not to say that, you know, the other people that I've, I've worked with weren't, it was just, he was special. So learned a lot from him and sort of throughout the negotiation process with him, there were a series of retention bonuses and things that, that Northwestern Mutual put in place that did make me a little more expensive than probably uh, I was candidly worth. And so, you know, Brad uh, having the relationship with Kellogg was like, hey, like, what do you think about you getting your MBA? And I'll, I'll sort of help out with that process and payment as well. And so that's what also kicked off, like, again, me kind of coming back to Northwestern now for an MBA, uh, really through Brad. While you were there and you had this opportunity now to learn from a, a really good leader, how did that change you? I think in a variety of ways. 
fortunately or unfortunately, you know, I, I have had to fire a fair amount of people in my career. And I think it was really Brad that helped me shift that thought process a little bit. I was always terrified about the person that I was firing. And I think what he helped me understand is it's usually not about the person. <laughs> it's usually about the rest of the team that they're impacting. And so like you're actually making everybody's life better, including the person that you're, you're letting go by doing this. And that's maybe the more extreme version of like feedback and understanding that like feedback and coaching is a gift, especially as I've progressed in my career. Receiving tough feedback is hard. Giving tough feedback is harder. And so I think like truthfully believing that like when you receive tough feedback, that's not easy for the person telling you that, that you really should treat it like a gift. And you really should treat it like, again, not to say that all advice is great advice, but to really think hard. Because it took a lot of courage for that person to tell you something. And candidly, like if they're giving you pointers on how to grow, it's because they care about you, right? And so like receiving tough feedback is usually from a place of like love and respect, more so than it is a, a place of like disappointment and hatred. But that was something that really kind of changed the way I thought about leading teams and the way that I thought about building teams and hiring and firing and like just the importance of bringing in. I would rather have a C player today that's coachable than an A player that's not coachable. Because you can turn that C player into an A player. We're almost guaranteed that A player over time is going to be a C player. And there's no hope for them. So I think like understanding the power of coachability and just being more susceptible to coaching myself. Where like, again, I was always a gloves up, like ready to fight kind of person. Just understanding that like, yeah, it sucks to give tough feedback. Uh, and to truly treat it like a gift is important. Oh, man, that is so well said. It is tough. It's really hard delivering tough feedback. But man, it, you are right. If you don't do that, then it sets a tone for the entire team. And I've made that mistake many times. It took me a while to catch on to that. Yeah. There's a phenomenal framework created by a Kellogg professor named Craig Wartman called the two by two feedback matrix, or I, I don't even remember what it's called, but uh, the two by two Craig Wartman, you'll, you'll find it. He did he does it on <laughs> YouTube videos and whatever on it, um, where it's basically creating a way and it's especially powerful for feedback coming up. So to your point, maybe to say more explicitly what, what I think you were getting to is that, like, it's really hard to get feedback as the founder, CEO, like top person at the company. Cause like you're used to giving feedback down, but it's really, really hard to get feedback back up. And so what Craig's framework does is it's a series of eight questions. It shouldn't take any more than like 10 minutes. And if it does take more than 10 minutes, you probably didn't do it right. Where all it is, is like, you say something you think you did well, I agree or disagree. And then I tell you something different that you did that I think you did well. And then you tell me something that you want to work on that you think you can do better. I agree or disagree. And then I have to tell you something different that you can do better. And then we roll reverse and then it's all turned back on me. And we answer the same four questions, but you're in a, you're in a position where like, you're not allowed to get out of this and you do it every week, right? You're like, you're not allowed to get out of this. You have to give feedback. I like that a lot. I've done some 360s where, you know, you do like the good, the bad, the ugly, but I, like, I don't want to, I didn't like the ugly part because sometimes it wasn't an ugly and I don't want to like force an ugly. That's a really cool, I am going to look that up and I'll try to actually put that in the, in the show notes as well. That's, that's, that's a really solid, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to look into that deeper. So you had this masterclass and you just learned a ton when you're in, when you're at Livewatch, Livewatch exit again, common theme in, in, in your career. And then you go to Ken. And Ken is a rocket ship. 
I'm familiar because I've just have experience within the insured tech space. What were some of those challenges and some of those things that you guys found that's like, okay, when you made this change, that made a significant difference. What were some of those in your experience at Kin? So many. In one, I feel like this doesn't get said enough, but even a rocket ship like Kin, and by any measure, Kin was a rocket ship, there are moments of like deep, deep despair where like you're pretty sure you're going bankrupt. And that is just like, even as a rocket ship, that still happens. So like, I think it gave me the confidence now with perfect hindsight that like, no, there's shitty times you got to go through no matter what, that even having a, building a phenomenal company in that short of a, of a time still has some really, really dark days. And that's just part of the life that you signed up for. I think that was number one. Number two, I got to be careful because VCs definitely don't like to hear this. But from my perspective, it's so much more important to build the right business and the right business model than it is to necessarily throw tech at problems. Great example is that like Kin does have a relatively high touch sales process. We're not all, but a good chunk of the sales process does have a physical person involved, right? To answer questions or like help move you throughout the process. VC is like, okay, well, how do we automate that? And like, sometimes that's not the right answer. And that it's okay to have like a more high touch sales process as long as you're accounting for the costs appropriately and thinking about it appropriately. And especially with insurance, that was a very different way of thinking where previously it's like, if someone wanted your product, you sold it to them, period. Hard stop. Insurance is weird because the people that really, really, really want your product, you probably really, really, really don't want to have your product. And so there's this like weird push and pull that you have to like kind of tease some of those areas out. And especially as like the growth guy in the organization, like that was something I had to get slapped around a little bit to be like, it's not just about growth. It's about growing profitably. And again, this like second, third, fourth order impact that like maybe I was having a hard time four years prior understanding on like brand was even more so when it was like insurance risk of like, yeah, dude, you can sell whatever, like 1925 house on the beach in Miami, but like, we're going to pay for it. <laughs> uh, and like whatever you're getting in premium is not going to cover the the costs on this. And so that was a different way of, of thinking that like not everybody should be our customer. And then yeah, like my team got way better, I think, than I was anticipating where I had 200 plus employees kind of ro rolling up to me. And that was not, I think, anything that any of us had kind of planned for. But I did have to get really, really good at kind of like managing managers and managing managers of managers and knowing that that's just a different person with a different kind of like set of KPIs that they have to live up to that also respond differently, like way differently. Like you putting a ton of pressure on like your direct report doesn't always translate the way you want it to down to the front lines. I think those are all great examples. You know, so for our listeners, for what Jamie's saying, the most simplified version is when you sell insurance and you're the carrier, you know, and you're responsible for paying out any claims if something was to happen that triggered that policy to pay. If you oversell in a particular area, let's just say beach houses in Florida and a hurricane hits that coast where you had a lot of them, that could kill the entire company because you have to pay all those claims um, and you can go bankrupt really easy. Jamie, one thing I want to actually ask is, um, you know, you mentioned that even at a company that's super high growth by all times, you have these, by any measure, this is super high growth company, but there's still these moments of despair. And, you know, you've been in really high pressure positions every single step along the way. How do you manage the stress? For me, I think you got to get hit a couple times. <laughs> it's, it's that like cult classic, like I'm a huge fan of Green Street Hooligans. 
Uh, it's like about the the soccer fighting clubs in in England. There's a quote in it that's like, "You got to get punched in the face to realize you're you're not made of glass." And like, it's kind of true. Like, you got to get fired. You got to blow up a couple companies. You got to like. People always talk about it as failure to make it, I think, more palatable. But no, like what failure means is like you got to blow a company in half. And like everybody that you know and love, like you just made unemployed, right? Like that hurts to a different degree that like maybe failure doesn't totally encompass or like you personally have to get fired and be told flat out that you're not good enough to really realize like there's always the next day. And it really takes the pressure out of the situation. Like, yeah, you're staring death in the face. You've been here before. You've died before. It's not that scary. It's really scary the first time through. It's a lot less scary the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh time through. And so I think for me, like, yes, it certainly added pressure to the the situation. But I think all that meant was I can't miss here. That didn't actually change my thought process or like anything else. And I feel like that's another trait of leadership that like I learned from Brad. You can tell a seasoned leader from a more green leader. When times are rough, a green leader will try to jump at the problem and get really in everybody's business and try to solve it themselves and be the hero. A seasoned leader will empower their people, especially around that problem, trust them to fix it. And if it's not working, find new people that can fix it. But you almost take a further hands-off approach when in really, really dire times. As a seasoned leader, just knowing that you're going to be more of a distraction than you are helpful. Fighting the instinct to get into the weeds and to trust your people. Right. The last question I want to ask is, you've jumped up all the way to the top. Now you're at CEO, right? If you can talk to your younger self and have a conversation with your younger self, your age, whatever age it is, totally up to you. What advice would you have for that person in that conversation? It actually has nothing to do with business. I went through a pretty rough patch after I left Kin, but before I, I started with Karmacare, where I had wrapped up my entire brand around Kin, and I had wrapped up my entire brand around being this like startup guy and whatever else that like when that went away, I was very confused and lost on who I was, where I think if I could say anything to my younger self, it would be to find balance in a much, much better way and like not just purely chase dollars. Because God forbid you get it. And then like, who are you? It was a very uneasy feeling for a while. I wouldn't say I'm all the way through that journey yet. But the importance of balance, I think, is cannot be overstated, especially when you've seen a little bit of success where like you can just tie your entire existence around this company or this problem or this whatever that may be extremely noble in pursuit. But if and when like it's time for you to move on, like who are you <laughs> at, at the end of the day, I think is a is a question I should have spent a lot more time thinking about as a younger person. Jamie, I can't think of a better place to stop it than there. Thank you again for coming on the show, man. This has been great. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me.